Luke chapter 4, I'm going to begin by reading at verse 14 and read all the way down through verse 30. Where Luke writes, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever you have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Let's pray together. Lord, this text is so intriguing. We see the beginning of the ministry of our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And we see his gracious words and the response of the people who heard it. I pray that this text would be instructive for us today that we might see the working power of your Spirit in hearts even in this room, and that we might recognize the gracious message of the gospel, and that rather than responding in wrath and hostility, we would respond with faith, humility, and obedience. And we pray this all in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Jesus begins his ministry. He's gone through every test you can think of. He's been tempted by Satan for 40 days where he hasn't eaten anything. Surely he drank water so that his body would at least live in that sense, but he essentially 
was starving by the end of that time period. And all that 40-day period, Satan is unleashing every single temptation and testing imaginable. And we noted last time that Jesus, in a sense, is described as the Son of God. For in the previous chapter, chapter 3, Adam is described as the Son of God. And I believe Luke is doing that on purpose to show that Adam was the first son, if you will, that God made and that he failed in the Garden of Eden. And yet Jesus, as the Son of God, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, passed the test with flying colors under much harsher circumstances. So after passing the test, Luke records for us now the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the region of Galilee. And this text, frankly, if, if I can be totally honest with you, is really intriguing because nothing in it that happens you expect to happen. Uh, at least for me. Maybe you guys expect it to happen as you're reading it. But I really do believe most of Luke's readers would have responded with astonishment at this entire paragraph. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 30. And we're going to see aspects of Jesus and his message that he gave at his initial outset of his ministry. And this text is describing for us why Jesus came. If I could just tip my hand here and say, what is this text teaching us? It's talking about why Jesus came and how Jesus came and to whom Jesus came. He came in the power of God's Holy Spirit, and we'll see that momentarily. He came to preach good news, a message that everyone should have longed to hear and wanted to hear. And he preached that good news to a people who should have longed to hear it, a people who were helpless, rebels, unable to change their circumstances. So let's look at these three points. Let's look at why Jesus came. In verses 14 and 15, we see that Jesus came in the power of the Spirit. And this is what Luke says in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding regions. Now, if any historian were writing the story of the life of any other person, they would simply say, and so-and-so returned to Galilee. That's how they would have done it. But that's not how Luke describes Jesus returning to Galilee. He says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And this is something that Luke has emphasized throughout most of the gospel up to this point. All the way back in chapter 1, we read about the fact that the Holy Spirit would be overshadowing Mary we read in Luke chapter 2 and verses 25 through 27 about Simeon. It describes him as a man who is just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. In chapter 3 and verse 22, when Jesus is at his baptism, it says the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And at the very beginning of this chapter, chapter 4, it says, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, returned into Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Whatever the case may be, Jesus is coming in the power of the Spirit. 
And I believe Luke is describing this for several reasons, one of which is to demonstrate that everything Jesus did was done under the auspices of the triune Godhead. That Jesus didn't come rogue. Jesus didn't just come and do willy-nilly whatever he wanted. It wasn't as if the triune Godhead in preparing the plan of salvation and redemption decided that they would cast lots and figure out which one of them was going to go down to save people, and the lot just happened to fall on Jesus. It wasn't like they said, all right, since the lot fell on you, Jesus, you're going to go down and you will rescue everybody and just figure out a way to do it. Just go down there and figure it out for yourself. No. This was all planned by the sovereign Godhead in which Jesus would come and would be led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he would be tested by Satan. And now he's led by the Spirit of God back into the region where he grew up. And verse 15 describes for us that when he goes there, he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Now, one of the questions that you may be wondering when you read that is, what is a synagogue? Have you ever stopped to actually study out what a synagogue is? And what's the difference between the synagogue and the temple? Well, put simply, the synagogue was a way or a place for the Jewish people to worship And it arose during the time period of the exile when the people were in judgment, the temple had been destroyed, the people were dispersed everywhere or in captivity, and yet they still wanted to worship their God. And so what they did was they created this location that they referred to as the synagogue, a place where they could hear the reading of Scripture, where they could hear instruction and worship God together. It was a public place, and in the time of Jesus, the building structure itself would have looked like the Greco-Roman Empire's building structure would have looked very much like a Roman building. And what would happen is people would come to this building and they would have this liturgy, if you will, this form of worship. And what it would include was a reading of the Torah where whoever the teacher was would stand up, would be given a scroll from the Torah and would read select portions from the Torah to the people who were listening. Then he would hand the scroll back to the attendant and he would sit down And he would teach, he would explain what it meant, and then he would preach a sermon from that text. It's not unlike what we do now. So Jesus does this. He goes to a synagogue, he's given the, the scroll to read from, and then he sits down and instructs the people. And in the text you'll notice here that it says when he goes to the synagogue, it says that he, he, gave, he gives the book back in verse 20 and he sat down, which implies that when he was given the scroll of the text of Isaiah, he was standing when he read it. They would do that out of respect for the word of God. And so often in churches such as ours, you will have pastors or preachers who will say, please stand with me for the reading of the word of God. And it comes from that Jewish tradition where they stood out of respect for holy writ. And then you'll notice in verse 20 that it describes that after Jesus hands back the scroll to the attendant, he sits down. And that seems a little unusual because in our culture, the people who are listening sit down and the teacher or the instruction, the person giving the instruction will stand up and do the preaching and the instruction. In that culture, it was the exact opposite. The students would be standing up and the teacher would sit down. And so Jesus, when he sits down, 
is not basically doing a mic drop where he reads the Bible and just goes and sits in the pew and everybody's like, okay, now what? No, this was part of the instruction and the way they would teach in the temple. So Jesus comes in the power of the Spirit and he's going into various synagogues in the regions and he's being, it says in verse 15, glorified by all. Your translation might say he was being praised by all. And that's the idea. People were listening to this man read the scriptures and explain them with eloquence and great insight. And news of him began to spread. People were saying, have you heard of this unknown man up to this point? None of us have heard of this guy other than we know his dad is Joseph. He's a carpenter. But he's not really a rich person. He's not a highly educated person necessarily. And yet somehow he's able to read the Torah with great eloquence and explain it clearly. And people were praising him. And I believe the the New King James and the King James, when it says that he was being glorified, that that is a good word to use because what is happening as Jesus is proclaiming the message of the gospel the people are recognizing that there is something different about him. We read that he comes in verse, in verse 16 to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So here he is in his hometown. Everything looks familiar. Everybody recognizes him. They've seen him grow up. And it's, he comes into the synagogue, and I'm sure people had, at this point began to hear about him. And when they see that Jesus is coming to the synagogue on the Sabbath, people begin to flock in because they want to see, what is the big deal? We, this is Joseph's son. This is a nobody. And all of a sudden, we're hearing that people everywhere are finding him captivating. So he comes in, and he's handed a scroll from the book of Isaiah. And frequently, the scrolls could not contain all of the book, the letter, particularly with Isaiah. So he so happened to be given a scroll from Isaiah chapter 61. And I'd like to briefly read that text that Jesus read all those years ago. Isaiah 61. Jesus takes the scroll, opens it to this portion of Isaiah, and reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus stood up to read that text hands the scroll of Isaiah back to the attendant and sits down. He taught from the scriptures. He came in the power of the Spirit, but he came with a powerful message as well. 
He was given the scroll from Isaiah, reads the text from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, where there the prophet Isaiah talks about this servant. And all throughout the book of Isaiah, there are these different songs recorded in it. And these songs describe the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And this text describes the preaching of this servant. And we see the three aspects of his preaching, that he comes in the power of the Spirit. The text says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And the message that he gives is good news. It's a wonderful message, a good message. And the recipients of that message are people who are helpless and unfortunate. I mean, look back at Luke 4. Look at what it says. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. And by the way, just as a side note, that phrase there, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. If you have any other translation besides the King James or New King James, it probably doesn't actually have that phrase in there. And the reason is because in the original manuscripts, there, there are many of the manuscripts where that phrase is not in there. But regardless, it's in the Isaiah text. So Jesus, I'm sure, read this phrase anyway. So he gives, again, the recipients, it's to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to who? The captives. To give recovery of sight to who? The blind. The recipients are poor, brokenhearted, captives, blind, oppressed. These are helpless people people who can do nothing to change their condition. And what does this servant in Isaiah do? He preaches. He proclaims. And everything he does reverses the condition of those helpless people. Notice again, to preach the gospel, the good news, to the poor. To heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty or to set free those who are in captivity to give sight back to those who are blind, to give freedom to the ones who are oppressed. Everything this servant does reverses the condition of the people who are helpless and hurting. Jesus says this scripture is important. So what he teaches, he teaches from the word of God and then he teaches with authority because he is the one standing up, proclaiming this message to them. And people listening to this message are probably thinking, all right, he's going to give us some kind of encouraging note, some kind of encouraging thing about the future Messiah who will come, about how he will rid us of all of our enemies, how we'll have the glories of the Davidic kingdom once more. And yet Jesus teaches with confidence when after he closes the book in verse 20 and sits down and every eye is on him waiting expectantly for the teacher to preach. Verse 21 records for us probably the shortest sermon or at least one of the shortest sermons ever. In fact, some of us would probably wouldn't mind it if a sermon was just one sentence long. Here is his message. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That was his message. One point. He preaches and teaches with confidence. He doesn't say to them, this is a wonderful text about a coming future figure that we all are longing to see. 
one who will come and will rid us of our bondage and enslavement to the Roman Empire, one who will restore the glories of the Davidic kingdom, of the the glories of the riches and wisdom of Solomon. We cannot wait for that day, but hang in there, Jewish people. He's coming. He's coming. And it'll be a wonderful day. That's not what he says. He gives one sentence. And that sentence is simply, this very day, this text that you have heard in your hearing is fulfilled. And that's it. Everybody hears him say this with confidence. How could he possibly know that? Is he saying he's that servant? Is he saying he's the Messiah? Verse 22 records that all bore witness to him and the response of these people was wonder and astonishment. Who is this man? He has the audacity to suggest that this text is fulfilled today, that we are about to see the glories of the Davidic kingdom. We're about to see the wonderful release of our bondage. We're going to be restored once more to the place of elevated uh, positioning within world history and within the kingdoms. And it's this nobody from Nazareth who's saying that. Who does he think he is? Verse 22 tells us they, were, they marveled at the gracious words that, that really is a way of saying the eloquence with which he was able to speak. They were marveling at the way in which he was able to speak with clarity and eloquence, eloquence and they said, is this not Joseph's son? He's the son of a carpenter. Who does he think he is? We've known this guy. We've seen him grow up. And he is telling us that he is a fulfillment of this. Their initial response was surprise. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues on in verse 23, quoting a proverb that otherwise we probably would not have known of considering it wasn't really in a lot of other sources, but it must have been a common proverb in his day where he says, you will say to me, surely, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. The exact meaning behind this original proverb is not necessarily clear. But the point is simply this. You have been doing wonderful, wondrous things in other places. Now you need to do it here. Do it here. But clearly, Jesus identifies something about them that they were hiding the entire time. For in verse 24, after describing this proverb, he gives this truth principle where he begins with the formula, Amen, or truly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And the way I think about this is I think about when I was a kid, I, was, I think about back when I was a teenager, it would be easy for me to hear my parents give me advice about something. And they would give me advice or counsel about whether it be finances or whether it be college or whatever the case may be. And I think, yeah, okay. Yeah, what do you know? 
fact, most teenagers, and, and we, all, we all were this way, whether we want to admit it or not, tend to think that we are smarter than our parents. And it's amazing. I was telling this to somebody, I think, somebody earlier this week. It's, it's amazing. My parents have seemed to have gotten wiser as I've gotten older. It's funny how that works. As a teen, though, you listen to your parents give you advice, and most of the time you tend to dismiss it. And yet, if you're a youth pastor or a friend or another adult that you respect gives the exact same advice, you're more inclined to listen to it. Why is that? Because there's something about you not wanting to hear something or take advice from, in humility, from your parents or from whoever, absolutely, like if a sibling, an older sibling, gives advice to a younger sibling, they're like, yeah, what do you know? And then the same, another person gives the same advice. They listen to them. For some reason, they're willing to be more humble to somebody who's outside. Here, Jesus gives that same concept to them when he says, a prophet, no prophet is accepted in his own country. They don't want to listen to him. He'll go to another place where they'll listen to his message, but he comes to his own country and they refuse to listen to him. And then he gives two illustrations of this. The illustrations begin in verse 25, where he says, In the days of Elijah in the land of Israel, there were many widows. Many widows. And yet in the days of Elijah, when there's no rain for over three years, and there's a great famine throughout all the land, he only goes to one widow. And who is that widow? It was a widow from Sidon. You're not, and you know Tyre and Sidon. A place that was primarily Gentiles. He's sent there and he's speaking and he's in and amongst Gentile people. And then the second illustration he gives is verse 26. Or excuse me, verse 27. And many lepers were in Israel. In the time of Elisha, the, this, the uh, person who was anointed by Elijah to be his successor as prophet. But did Elisha go to all those other prophets? No. To none of them was, did he go and cleanse except to Naaman, who was what? A Syrian. Another Gentile. You read this, you read Jesus saying these words, and then in verse 28, you see the Jewish people's response to his message here, to what he says. It says, Then all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with rage. What about what Jesus said could incite such hostility towards himself? I mean... It seems as though everything he has said, frankly, has been fairly harmless. In fact, he has at least said that this passage of Isaiah that I'm preaching to you is good news. I am proclaiming to you good news. Today, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And yet, you will not listen to it. And so I will proclaim it to other people. I will proclaim it to those who are brokenhearted to those who are poor, to those who are captive, to those who are blind, to those who are oppressed. And you know who those people are? They're people that you have maligned. They're Gentiles, just like the widow of Sidon, just like Naaman the Syrian. And the Jewish people 
who revered this text and looked forward and longed for the day when their Messiah would come on their terms. When their Messiah would come and do what they wanted him to do. When their Messiah would come and elevate them. That when this mere Nazarene has the audacity to proclaim something so scandalous in their hearing that their response to the good news is not to welcome and embrace it, but to attack it with hostility. And what they end up doing in verse 29 is they rise up and they grab him and they physically drag him out of the city. They lead him to the brow of a hill where down below, if were he to be tossed, he would be thrown down instantly to his death. All because he read Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 and said, I've come with a message that is good news. And this message is for you and for all people. And the people respond with murderous intent. It looks as though the question Satan posed to Jesus is about to be put to the test. When he says, look, cast yourself down, for he'll give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands shall they bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The very thing Satan had been asking, these people are about to do. The thing that Satan told Jesus to do, these people want to do. Why? Why could somebody so gentle and tender who came to proclaim a message of joy and hope, a gospel, good news message, why should he be responded to with such vehemence and anger? And the answer is quite simple. Because the people who heard the message didn't want to hear it. The natural response to the good news of the gospel throughout the last 2,000 years has not been to have hordes and hordes of overwhelming people and crowds coming and saying, yes, that's what I want. That's what I want to hear. The overwhelming response to the message of the gospel is undoubtedly hostility. No question about it. Jesus begins his ministry with a proclamation of good news. And yet the response and reaction of the people is to seek to kill him. This, I believe for Luke, is setting the table for the rest of the gospel. Everything Jesus said, everything Jesus proclaimed is something that they should have wanted to hear. They should have longed for because they indeed were poor and brokenhearted and captives and slaves to their sin, blind to the reality of their sin, oppressed by the world and the flesh and the devil. This message was what they needed. This message was the hope they longed for. But they didn't understand this text the way Jesus understood it. 
And their reaction to what he said was anger. I believe that this really describes Jesus' ministry while he was on earth and that the rest of the Gospel of Luke is going to show that repeatedly this is the reaction people have to his message. In fact, the religious leaders, the religious elite are going to spend the rest of their time doing everything they can to try trip him up, to try catch him, and eventually to plan and plot his murder. Which is bizarre to most of us, because most of us, when you have good news, what is the reaction? Joy. I mean, think about, think about remember at the end of World War II, VE Day, VJ Day, and you see those pictures and even some of those old black and white videos, and what are people celebrating at the good news that the war is finally over? They're celebrating peace. They're celebrating with great joy and jubilance. The reaction to good news is usually joy. But that's not the reaction of these people. And I believe it illustrates a universal truth. And by that I mean, the reaction of these people to the message of Jesus is not unlike the reaction of people in 2024. Jesus came in the power of the Spirit with a powerful message of good news and hope to an unrepentant people. The Jewish nation did not want his message. And there may be somebody sitting in this room who doesn't want his message either. You may be sitting here as one who has heard over and over again how God is the most glorious holy, transcendent creator, clothed in majesty. We sang, holy, holy, holy. In the scripture reading, we heard about the fact that, Jesus, or that God is the thrice holy God and that the angels are proclaiming that over and over and over again. And yet, we are sinners. And our natural sinful disposition is to not want God. That is who we are. And if you're in this room as somebody who has rejected Jesus Christ, you are not God's friend. You are frankly in the same company as these people who wished to murder him. But the good news that Jesus proclaimed is that he came to preach good news to the spiritually poor, to heal the sinful and brokenhearted, to set free from spiritual bondage those who are in captivity to their sin. To give sight to the spiritually blind like in the same way that God who commanded light to shine out of darkness that he could speak and cause the light to shine in a blackened, sin-stained heart. That's good news. But we as humans are morally bankrupt and our natural disposition is to not want God. Which is why it's no surprise that our culture right now in our society in the United States of America is increasingly anti-God. The view of Jesus is completely antithetical to the one described in the Gospels. And nothing could have exhibited that more than a certain commercial that was aired during the Super Bowl. Where Jesus comes in their mind to make everybody feel accepted and it doesn't matter what you believe, the most preeminent and important attribute that all of us should have is love and acceptance. If that was Jesus' message, then why were people filled with rage 
at the beginning of his ministry. If that was his message, why did they bring him to the edge of a cliff and did everything they could to throw him down? That wasn't his message. His message was a gracious message of hope. His message was a message that said, my good news and gospel is not limited to the people of God, the Jewish nation, but it is for the scope of all people groups. And they didn't want that. In order for us to have the eternal life that Jesus promises, it takes the power of the Spirit combined with a powerful message to overcome an unrepentant people. If you are here today as one who has not trusted Jesus as your Savior, I am begging you to bow your knee to Jesus Christ. Proclaim him as Lord of your life and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And the assurance is that by the power of God's Spirit, using that powerful message, you will be transformed from an unrepentant person to a child of God. That is the hope of the message of the gospel. And frankly, it doesn't stop there. The rest of your walk, Christian, the one who has believed this message, will continue to require you to utilize and embrace the power of God's spirit within you, to continually proclaim and embrace and love the powerful message of the good news of the gospel, and to continually yield yourself to his spirit as a repentant child of God whose destiny has been transformed and changed forever. Let's pray. Lord, our response to the good news of the gospel is only by your grace that if anyone in this room has embraced Jesus as their savior, it is only because the power of your spirit took the powerful message of the gospel and transformed their unrepentant heart. And so we praise you and we glorify you and thank you with joy and humility at such kindness that you have bestowed to us. But Lord, I pray for the person who is listening to this even now, who has yet to believe and embrace that message, this good news that Jesus proclaimed. I pray that you would overwhelm their heart by the power of your spirit, using the power of the message of the gospel to see the beauties and the riches and the wonderful results of loving and knowing Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.